Hello, hello. Welcome to the Jumbo Stem Podcast. Let me introduce you, Ritika Jaloka, who at end of life of this year won the second award of $1,500 in the category of cellular and molecular biology. Her project, which she conducted at the University of Central Florida, focuses on Huntington's disease, a fatal neurodegenerative disorder, and how it might be related from a molecular perspective to the process of oxidative stress, which she's going to expand on in the conversation. She is definitely characterized by an external focus, wanting to help others any way she possibly can. So hi, Ritika. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you. And I'm excited to have this conversation with you and to get to know more about your research. Yes, me too. Let's get started. Okay. So how did you start conducting research? What inspired you to investigate in the field of cellular and molecular biology? Firstly, I started doing the science fair since kindergarten, and I've been doing science fairs ever since. Um, but in middle school, my science research teacher's name was Mr. Regan. He introduced me to this little device by Backyard Brains called the Spiker Box, and it's used to measure neurotransmissional activity in cockroach legs. Um, and as an eighth grader, this was absolutely amazing. It was so cool. I spent the entire year um, coding on MATLAB trying to figure out how I, c- I can actually analyze these neurotransmissions. Um, and then at the end of the year, I submitted it to the science fair, Um, And at the science fair, I met so many people, especially in, I'm at the state science fair, I met so many people in the senior division that was working with neuroscience and was doing my little neurotransmission project on a huge level. And that was so inspiring. Um, And so the next year, I took AP Biology in school, and that just cemented any um, passion that I had for neuroscience. We learned about um, DNA structures and Ogazaki fragments, and it was just incredible to think about how someone can even um, conceive or figure this out. So I contacted many different labs to try to expand my research um, and work in neurodegenerative disorders. And I heard back from my PI right now, Dr. Southwell. Uh, She works on Huntington's disease. And I hadn't really heard of Huntington's disease because it's not a common neurodegenerative disorder. Um, but I went to an Orlando walk and met many patients there, and I was instantly drawn to it. So that's why now I work with Huntington's disease, um, and I love the brain. I look at neurons, and the first time that I looked at neurons under the microscope, it was incredible. They're just so cool. So I guess I'm just really interested in the brain. Yeah, that's just so interesting to hear the development and how your passion for science intensified as you've gained experiences through the science fair and as you've looked into projects from conducted by seniors. It's also characterized by a desire to help others who suffer from this disease and that you've actually moved into the field of neurobiology, which is such an intricately complex subject. You took this passion and actually transformed it into a project which you competed at ISEF. So how is HTT linked to oxidative stress? I'm interested to hear about your findings. Um, so HTT is just the Huntington protein, um, and that's what causes the disease. So when I first set out my project, the main goal was to figure out if oxidative stress is causing the onset of the disease or if it's merely a bystander, because this has been implicated in many papers that there's some linkage here. 
what we first did is we cultured primary embryonic neurons, um, and these neurons were immature because this is what most papers use. And looking at the relationship between oxidative stress and Huntington, we actually found something very interesting. So early on, the Huntington neurons had less DNA damage and less cell death than the control neurons did. Um, so I first thought maybe there's some sort of protection early on in the disease. In order to test that, I looked at how the brain responds to oxidative stress, um, which is normally antioxidants, um, just how the brain copes with it. But when looking at those markers as well, no response. So there, I basically found out that HD neurons, immature HD neurons, are not responding to oxidative stress at all. Obviously, this was very weird. But then, through lots of brainstorming, we decided <laughs> to try culturing mature neurons and seeing if this actually would make a difference. Because technically, there's nothing wrong with immature neurons. When looking at mature neurons, we actually found completely different results. This protection that we were sort of seeing is not actually there. We basically found out that it was merely just an artifact of looking at immature neurons. So that's one thing, I guess, that I'm trying to tell the scientific community is that we should not be using immature neurons to look at um, neurodegenerative disorders, that we should be using mature neurons. So I was hinting at this at ISF, but um, I've been doing more research following that on mature neurons, and that's supporting the same notion that there's completely different results. In order to make this model more accurate, we use this gene called progerin. Um, and progerin is a truncated form of the laminate protein. It causes heightened aging in the disease progeria. Um, so we used it to try to simulate onset of HD. So Huntington is a late adult onset disease, which means that when a person has HD or Huntington, they receive the genetic mutation when they're born, but they live their entire life with no symptoms until about age 40, when onset of disease starts. So it's a dominant disease. Yeah. When perhaps a child is five years old, and of course it depends on, well, their family's personal choice can go to testing because if it's a dominant disease, then the inheritance or uh, can be of 50% chance. Yes, exactly. It's 50% chance, um, the flip of a coin, and yes, the child can go through genetic testing. And even before the child is born, um, testing can be done. Oh, really? You could use early detection in the disease, but I guess the progression of the disease, such as you were talking about it, is that mature neurons are more susceptible. It's so the symptoms emerge in the ages of 50 or 60s, right? Right. It completely depends on how much mutated protein you have and many different biological factors, but around, yeah, that's around the age that symptoms start. So the difference between immature and mature neurons is a very different distinction than mature and aged neurons. So that's why I had to use progerin to actually age out the neurons. Mm. Um, so immature versus mature neurons is just the neurons actually growing in the plate. A mature neuron ha represents a true neuron, whereas an immature neuron is just the, the formation of one. And then using an aged neuron with progerin treatment, um, that would actually represent after onset of the disease. I see. And what was the result of the progerin treatment in your experimental settings? What, that was actually very exciting. It showed that cell death was actually increased, um, which means the Huntington neurons were hypersensitive to oxidative stress after disease onset. 
that was um, very interesting because people can work on treatments. I was looking at antioxidants and gene editing theories to combat this hypersensitivity that we see to oxidative stress. Um, and figuring out exactly if it's causing onset or a bystander is still yet to be known. The immature neurons do not respond to oxidative stress at all. Um, so for studies of any neural mechanisms, we should be using the turneron. So that goes outside the scope of Huntington, just for any neural mechanisms. Um, Progerin effectively ages neurons, and that was one big thing in my study, was that will it actually age out the neurons because it had not been used in this sort of model before. Um, and then uh, aging mature neurons uncovers many HD-related phenotypes. That's so exciting, especially because you're working on a problem affects around one in every 10,000 people. So congratulations on your achievements. Just as I've uh, said in the introduction, you've been awarded at the world's largest scientific championship. Thank you. And I'm sure that you have future steps you would like to take in this research. So how do you envision the project evolve um, in the future? I'm very excited. Now what I'm working on is repeating all my studies in mature and aged neurons to see, to learn more basically about the oxidative stress implication in HD. Um, and then as I mentioned earlier, looking at antioxidant treatments and gene editing treatments that edit the Huntington protein or the Huntington DNA strand to hopefully lessen or reduce the um, oxidative stress hypersensitivity. I see. So you are expanding the horizons to gain a clear understanding. I know that the future is very bright ahead of you. So I'm interested, are you going to move into the field of cell and molecular bio in your university studies? I definitely want to continue researching on neuroscience and HD um, Yeah, in the next step in college. Um, I'm really hoping that I can continue this project in oxidative stress because I feel like I've made a progress on it, so I want to continue this, but I guess we're just going to have to wait and see what happens. Yeah, for sure, but you've definitely made an advancement in science, and you've also been surrounded by like-minded fellows in the competition, so what does the ISAF experience represent to you as a whole? Yeah, so I love this question because... The ISAF experience was such a good one to me. This is my second year going, and um, the first year when I walked in the room and there was these huge screens and uh, someone playing drums in the front, it was just, it was mind-blowing. It was like, it's such a large scale, and the way that the Intel, the society, people that they treat the ISAF alumni was also very, or the ISAF finalists was, was very nice. But beyond all that, it was the people that I met there. Um, the fact that I could meet people from 81 countries and they all had similar interests as me. They got excited about Ogazaki fragments. And so that was, that was a very cool experience for me. When I first walked into the room where they have all the posters set up, I immediately was drawn to the biomedical engineering section because the projects that they were doing were truly incredible. I, after the judging ceremony, I had to go back and talk to those people. And someone created this system in the medical field that shows up injuries. And he was going to patent that. And I, I thought that was just amazing at how kids my age could be doing things like this. So not only was it so cool, but it was really inspiring that I can also do something like this. And other people can 
at my age and I guess just walking down the rows and learning about what everyone was doing, learning about the different fields that I didn't even know existed. That was very, um, that was very cool for me. So I love the ISF experience and I really hope to go again soon. Yes, absolutely. It's like the ripple effect. Someone starts it and then it just affects its surrounding. It's such an impactful event where you can, just as you mentioned, meet with those students who can inspire you, do the next steps in your project as well. And also it's such a fun event where you can make long-lasting connections. So what was your favorite moment of this year's Intel? one there's there's so many but I can talk about I guess my top experiences I loved the entrepreneurship panel because I guess that was looking at a version of the future what the future could be that was um, also very inspiring like you said you make great friends that last with you forever and actually I met some friends at the alumni lunch there and we're going to Disney next week so, oh really that's so cool yeah. I know so it was it was very um it's very good experience I really I don't think I could pick a favorite moment I love the keynote speech the presentation I also loved how at the pin exchange it was more of we didn't no one really talked about um science the entire time we talked about different parts of ourselves different parts of the world I learned so many things about um, people in the Netherlands um Ireland I get the pin exchange I would say the pin exchange was the best part of it Yes, you also exchange your bird views and different parts of your culture and you just have this very diverse and uh, engaging experience. Right, yeah. That was very well said. There is this segment coming up which is also related to the project but just as we were talking about how you can get to know others, not just from the scientific aspect, so there is a segment called getting to know the person beyond the project board. I'm interested, what were some of the lessons you learned while working on your project and would like to share with others? Yeah, and so this is another question that I really like because I like listening to what other people have learned and hopefully that can help me. Um, but for me, I think the biggest thing is perseverance. When I'm working in the lab and I'm pipetting or analyzing the Western block, culturing neurons and it's late at night, that motivation to go back to bed finish, come back the next morning and repeat constantly, um, sometimes it can be very hard or stressful. Just keep on going. It's, it's going to get better and you can learn from every experience. And that was a big thing for me. When I first started out doing research, I was very stressed out and everything not working because I would spend months culturing one plate of neurons and then if the test doesn't work, I'd have to repeat everything. Another month of hard work. But... I slowly learned that every little thing that I do, I'm learning from. If I forgot to feed my neurons one time, they all died, by the way, I oh. learned that now I have to feed them. <laughs> so little, little things like that, um, I feel like I'm slowly gaining so much experience. So anything that goes, if nothing can necessarily go wrong. If you're, if you're putting in the work, you'll always learn from that experience. And so I think just loving the research experience and not being stressed about anything in the cliche form working, I think would be the biggest lesson that I've learned. 
Yes, you absolutely put it together beautifully. It's like you have an innate interest or something you developed over the years through those experiences. It's like a seed you put in the soil. But just as you said, you have to put in the hard work. You have to provide the external factors, the sunlight. You have to water it. So uh, basically, you have to put yourself out there. But it's only possible if you have a passion for it because that's going to lead you to not be afraid of those roadblocks in your research search but actually learn from those experiences and to move on right and that's the big thing that when you're talking about um, the passion because when you're actually in the lab um, let's say working on a disease it can become very impersonal um, but when you meet with actual patients in my case Huntington patients um, that's when it really clicks for you and you say that what you're doing actually has a purpose and it can help someone Yes, talking about it, I saw that you organized or you participated at a stride in Melbourne that you raised donation for. So the next topic I would really like to touch on because I'm humbled by how you reach out to those people who are diagnosed with HD and you have those personal experiences. So how do you raise awareness about HD? What were some of your experiences during that time? As I said, when I first started getting the disease, even I didn't really know the mechanisms or anything really about Huntington. So I definitely want to change that in other people. Um, so as you had said, I organized a walk with HDSA, which is the Huntington's Disease Society of America in my Melbourne area. And we raised $9,000 for HD research. Oh, congratulations. But, thank you. Um, but bigger than the money, I feel, was the awareness that we raised because people came um, from all um, around the area. And I thought that was such a nice atmosphere there where people could just talk about um, the disorder to people who didn't really know about Huntington. I thought the awareness was the biggest thing that we could take away from that, that walk. One big thing was in the walk, people came up to me and said, this is the first thing that it's the first event that has happened in the southeast area of Florida because most of them have to drive very far, so just three hours to go to different Huntington events. So I definitely thought that we can start something now in the southeast area. I'm also working with some people in Orlando to help continue on a support group. And so I just think the biggest thing from this walk is not the money raised is obviously important, but it's the community that we built um, just from this one meeting or this one walk and the awareness that we're raising. I, I just try to promote it on social media, um, Huntington's disease, like to get aware of it. Um, through science fairs, when people stop by at my board, I like to tell them what they can do to be a part of it, which is, if you're listening, um, if you go to the HDSA website, Huntington's Disease Society of America, they have information on all the trials in HD, they have information on what you can do to help, so you can definitely take a look at that. Um, I recently went to the HDSA annual convention in Boston, and I presented my I researched there. Uh, I told the HD was a family convention, and I told the, the HD patients there about research and the new findings. I met with so many people there that I think could really help raise awareness in my area. So I'm working on, um, I'm working on like I said, the support group. Another big thing was first educating myself, and then trying to tell the patients about research. I've been researching on the different Huntington trials that are going on and how people can be a part of that. And you actually don't have to have Huntington's disease to help. Mm. So that's 
people aren't aware of, which I'm also trying to get at. Um, and I, my lab has this open house every year, a neuroscience open house, where I meet with patients and I present to them um, research and just educating the patients about the actual research behind the disease, which is something very, very important so they understand what is actually happening. Yeah, that's absolutely fantastic because there is such a power in community and also sharing science in a way that relates to their everyday life like posting it on social media, raising the awareness, and just as you mentioned, I'm also gonna post the HDSA's website and all the links provided on the drop yeah. stamps Insta story. Those ways that you are actively seeking ways and having that extra mile attitude to reach out those patients is really cool. Right, and one thing I also wanted to mention was at the convention, um, there was this big theme of research and patients or caregivers and the unity that there that there should be there and so there I met with many Huntington patients which I know I said this before but I think it's a truly important point that the research that you are doing will help someone and there is someone in there there that is in need of the help that you're doing so it's very important to just keep on going and um, I guess it's my driving force Yes, um, it's so interesting what you say because um, there has been a study I read so how much we remember from the things we learned and we remember 10% of the things we read but 90% when we actually have a personal experience and I think this also translated right. to science or conducting yes. research. Yes, definitely, I completely agree. Yeah, the personal experiences and the connections, um, meeting with actual people, that's that's when you um, when you truly understand what's, what's going on. And you are also a girl in the Drop the Stem squad. So the next question is related to that aspect. Because historically, women in STEM fields have had a difficult time finding opportunities to study or you know, getting proper credit for their achievements. So how do you see the role of women in science today? What would your message be to girls entering the scientific realm? So the role of women in science today is definitely um, a very important role. Um, but I do think that the presence of women in society is increasing exponentially. There are many, uh, lots of women entering the field, uh, which is very exciting um, in any types of any STEM fields. I haven't had any negative experiences as a woman in, in science, so I can't speak to that side of things, but my message would just be to keep your head up and keep going because you can do it and there's, there's no reason that it a woman can't do it, so you're doing great. Yes, absolutely, and not fearing difficult moments, but yeah. it also translates into the perseverance aspect because the best comes from when you don't give up and reach for the stars. You've definitely been worried by your scientific achievements, and there are a lot of determining factors. You know, people try to define the following uh, thing I'm going to touch on, but in your opinion, what is the best criteria to measure success by? Okay, so this is a very hard question because I feel like it, it, it differs a lot, and this is something that I've actually, I've been actively thinking about a lot, what is success to me, and in all honesty, I don't know, but I think that as long as I've learned one thing or I've gained one sort of experience, I've helped one person, that's success to me. So if, if I'm going to some sort of conference or if I'm going to um, a lecture, let's say, if I learn one important thing that I can keep with me or I meet one person, 
then I would say that that was successful. And in, I know when you mean success, you mean long term. But I sort of see success um, as short term because your success as long term will change. For some people, it's happiness. Uh, for some people, it's achieving something in their work or their research. I, in the future, I just want to be able to contribute to the world and hopefully, even if I can impact, like I said, one person's life with my work, then mm -hmm. I, th I think that I would have succeeded. But that meaning, that meaning can change. Absolutely. That perspective that there is something greater than ourselves that we contribute with our scientific achievements. And I think one of the characteristics scientists are defined by today that they are tackling problems that affect the lives of millions of people as you've touched on is that you can see which is I think a great message in the podcast you can see those little moments in your everyday life when you have an effect on the lives of others or when you have those little winning moments in in your lab as well as right. um, I don't know pixels of success and at the end yeah. you will look back and oh you'll see the whole picture forming right and even though it might not seem as success at first if something fails Um, it took me a long time to get this mentality, but even if it doesn't seem as success as first, it, it is success because it's helping you get there. So you're learning something. Yes, there is actually a quote by Churchill that um, success is a series of failures. So right. we can view it by the way too. And just as you learn that you gotta feed your neurons. Yeah, <laughs> right, I have to feed my nerves. There's many different things like that. I have to add this chemical or different things I've learned through error. Yeah, well, you know, there is no scientific research without errors, so definitely. It was very funny because there was some, a new person in my lab and I was training her how to do Western blot and how to filter neurons. And everything that I was telling her, I was like, make sure that you don't do this and this. And everything that I was saying was because I had done it once. I was like, like make sure you don't pour it on the left side. And that's because I had done it once on the wrong side. And Anyway, so that, it was just a... It was a funny experience because everything that I'd said, I'd messed up before. Well, I mean, you learn by failing and then you'll educate the future generation by those mistakes so they don't make it again. But I feel you. I feel you. When I was working in bacteria culture, I had those moments when they gave me the side eye. So people gave you the side eye? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when, when I did something and, you know, I knew that it wasn't the perfect way to treat those bacteria cultures, but of course I learned from it. They gave me the side yeah. eye. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I completely agree with that. <laughs> yeah, nonverbal communication is so powerful. Oh, yeah. Sign language, body language. <laughs> yeah, speaks louder than words, I guess. Yeah. And we are moving into a lighter field. So how do you like to spend your free time? And what would a perfect day constitute for you? I like to spend my free... I'll, actually, I'll talk about my perfect day. I was kind of explaining how I spend my free time. Um, so I would wake up and I... So I live in Melbourne, which is on the, on the beach, pretty much. So I'd wake up and I would go see the sunrise with my friends mm -hmm. and... Then possibly eat at a little breakfast cafe by the beach, go home, and maybe run, because I love doing cross-country, so probably run. Okay. And then after that, something with the sun and the water for hours, possibly the beach, 
just lying in the sun all day. I think that is a very fun thing. It's very relaxing, and I love doing that on days that I don't have to go to lab. Um, and then after that, coming home, taking a shower. It's a very important part. Is <laughs> and um, and then doing doing some work because I, I need to feel productive. So I like catch up on emails or the lab, whatever. So doing some work. Uh, doing some research, going to a coffee shop and reading because that's mainly how I spend my free time. I'm a huge bookworm, so I just I'll, I can sit there and read forever. Yeah, so I will sit there and read forever, and then <laughs> after that, I guess at night, just come home and when whenever my sister's home from college, we all like me and my family, we just sit around the coffee table and we watch an oldies movie so that would be the end of my perfect day an oldies movie yes like an oldies um like an american old movie okay what's your favorite one to watch or you you kind of get tired of watching no i like so many of them um girls just want to have fun all the classics yeah (laughs) all the classics yeah that's cool you know women empowerment yeah (laughs) yeah definitely yeah, that's so nice that you incorporate physical um, fitness and also enjoying the life of living near the beach. A day full of nothing or just like sitting and reading is sounds very cliche. But. You know, knowledge is power. And the more you observe, the more you will know and um, the wider the perspective you will have. What is one book you think everyone should read in their lifetime? I'm sure you've read many, but what would that be? won't be there's so many books i think you can learn something from every book i would say i'd be bandwagon i'll say harry potter because i think you can learn a lot from harry potter her writing is very sophisticated also it's not only can learn vocabulary it's just a fun book you have you know a lot to choose from a lot of harry potter ones (laughs) oh right yeah exactly there's seven you can pick what whatever kind of story you want it's perfect yeah i think it's amazing that she created this other world that people can that's one thing i love about books is that it can transport you to another world like movies can as well but i feel like books go a little bit more in depth because you you create the world in your head yeah and you don't have to plane for the airplane tickets so it's definitely um greater <laughs> choice economically exactly and then the type of harry potter you can't even you can't buy an airplane ticket to hogwarts you know you can you just make that stuff up yeah, or travel there on your broom. Right, yeah. <laughs> have you been there? Or I think like in the Universal Studio in Orlando. Is yeah. there, do you have that? Yeah, so right by my house. Yes, um, I've been there so many times drinking butterbeer and riding all the Harry Potter rides. That's so cool. I've heard that the butterbeer can give you a literal diabetes rise. <laughs> I don't doubt that, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The next thing I would like to touch on, and I just love hearing all your different perspectives on this one, what is your dream in life? Impacting the world in some way, or just to, whenever I figure out what success means to me, I guess achieving that. Yeah, if I can just change one thing for the better. Yes, that's perfect. As you've said that you have been inspired by many in your scientific endeavors, Let's play the if game. So given the choice of anyone in the world living today or in the past, whom would you want as a dinner guest and why? Okay, so this person that I have been thinking about isn't 
not necessarily someone that inspires me. It is the, you know, the person who just recently genetically engineered the embryos. Yeah. Um, like HIV. So his work was very unethical, but I'd like to sit down and talk about the, what, where he came from, the boundaries of ethics and science exploration and exactly why he did it, because I don't agree with what he did. So completely opposite of um, something that inspires me, but it's something that I want to learn about, the, the different perspectives of the boundaries of science, because I know this is a huge debate. And so I just like, if I have an opinion on something, I like to learn the other side so that I can expand or be more be more open-minded about it so mm, that's a very interesting response i've been reminded as you were telling this that the best way to create a foundation for your argument or actually change your mind depending on the outcome is to know the opposite side's opinion right because that will give your point of view a very great fortified foundation of credibility right exactly the next one is a dessert that game section. So you're going to choose either or. Uh, I have a feeling which one you're going to choose based on our conversation. But still, um, jogging or hiking? I actually would say hiking. Okay. Because I, I live in a very flat land of Florida. And so anytime I go, um, go up north and go hiking, like the, I love the fresh pool there. So that's something different that I usually don't get. So that's a hiking. Oh, that's real cool. And the next one is city or countryside? Something in the middle? Like a, a suburb? I have to pick one, don't I? Well, I mean, you can give the median <laughs> of the answer. Okay. So. so like... <laughs> I will take the median. Okay, okay, median it is. Um, cookies or cake? <laughs> cookies. Chocolate cookies. Painting or drawing? Painting. Mountains or beach? I'd say the beach. Yeah. Do you surf? I don't. I, I've tried, but it's really hard. And I, I want to. I want to try. So one day I'm just going to go and learn. You know the ones, um, those artificial pools you might have at some water parks? Yes. Right. And they... I tried that. And? Uh, was it successful? Uh, not so successful, no. <laughs> the positioning and actually getting up on the board is the hard part. It's because I, um, I keep nose diving, which means the top of the surfboard goes down in, in the water. Yeah. So I've tried, but I need to learn. Yeah, it, it's so hard. And you really got to have that core strength, or I don't know, the technique. And I think the greatest fear, well, from my perspective with surfing, is that sharks might see you as their <laughs> cheat meal of the day. <laughs> Sharks come that much. Have you seen all the the shark movies? Yeah. The surfers, yeah. Yeah, they they, they don't come up on the shore. Okay, so you're (laughs) in a safe place. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, and the last wrapping question, which really hearing all your answers then because it just really adds up to the meaning of science to us so I basically told the question but it is that what does science mean to you the exploration of the unknown and slowly making the unknown known that's real good you could have it as a quote haven't you thought about it (laughs) I mean I guess I could I could 
copyright that quote. <laughs> yeah, that's going to be your next Insta caption. I see it. <laughs> I'll, I'll do that. How, how does one copyright a quote? <laughs> yeah, that's real cool. Uh, what you've said that with every step you take, oh, okay, that's gonna be a song lyrics, but with every move you make, um, <laughs> but yeah, you are still working for the advancement of science. And I really enjoyed hearing all your perspectives and the scientific research you are conducting. And I really enjoyed the conversation and I wish you all the best in your next scientific journey you're gonna take. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for talking with me. You can find us on Instagram at Dravistan Podcast. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and make sure to stay tuned for the next one.